Hi, everybody. Um, right, so I'm, I'm going to be talking uh, a little bit about uh, the, some evidence that, that we have been able to collect uh, about the impact of the minimum income uh, requirement. Uh, the minimum income requirement is, is part of a package of, of changes to family migration rules that was introduced uh, in July 2012, um, which, which is broader than, than just that requirement. It, it, it brought in quite a few changes, a, a long discussion around art, how Article 8 is applied to immigration rules, changes to the uh, probationary period for, for partners, and very strict requirements for elderly dependents. But today I'm just going to be talking about, uh, specifically about the, the minimum income requirement for sponsors. So what is the minimum income requirement? So it's basically when a, when a British citizen or a settled person wants to uh, bring in a partner from outside who, who is a non-EEA uh, citizen. That person acts as a sponsor. And, and one of the requirements to be able to, to bring in uh, the partner is, is to be earning uh, an income above uh, 18,600 uh, pounds. If the person is sponsoring uh, a partner and, and a non-EEA child, then the minimum income uh, that they need to be earning is 22,400 pounds. And for every uh, child on top of that, there's an extra 2,400 uh, pounds. Now, uh, the requirement can be met through a combination of, of, of sources, and, and that includes uh, employment income, it inc includes income from self-employment, um, it includes cash savings. But there are specific formulas for, for some of these sources. Uh, for example, for savings, it's only savings above 16,000 uh, pounds. Those savings have to have been held uh, in a bank account for a specified period of time. And then that amount above 16,000 pounds needs to be divided by 2.5 because that visa is allocated for two, point, two, two and a half years. Um, and two key points are that the actual potential income of the partner cannot be counted towards uh, the requirement unless that partner is already living in the UK. And that third party support cannot be counted towards the income requirements. So any pledges by family members cannot be counted towards this. Um, what were the aims of, of the family migration uh, rules? Well, the stated aims when, when the policy was published uh, were to tackle abuse uh, of the family migration route, uh, to reduce dependency on public funds arising from family migration, and, and I guess this is uh, mainly where, where the minimum income, uh, what the minimum income was trying to, to, to achieve. Um, and the third one was promoting integration. But there is a fourth related policy aim, which even though it wasn't listed under the heading of what the policy aims were, it, it, it did appear in the foreword to, to the proposals, and it has been mentioned on numerous occasions by ministers, and that's uh, actually the aim of, of reducing uh, net migration to the UK. So some of the work that, that the Margins Rights Network uh, has been doing around this has been uh, collecting actually case studies to see what has been the impact on, on families and individuals. And we've done this both as, as the Margins Rights Network and in our role as the Secretariat of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Migration which itself has carried out uh, an inquiry into the family migration rules, which very recently published uh, a report which is available at uh, the table at, at the front. So uh, at the Migrant Rights Network, at the end of last year and early this year, we, we, we received 200 case studies uh, of people who wrote to us telling us uh, how it was affecting them and what they were doing about it. We did 
five longer case studies uh, carried out through one-to-one through -one interviews. The APPG received, uh, I think, 175 submissions in terms of case studies, and 100 of those were about the, 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 um, the income requirement itself. And then we looked at primary and secondary analysis of immigration statistics, and to the inquiry of the APPG, there were submissions from, from experts as well. The aggregate impact of, of, of the rules, well, if you look at, at the annual survey of, of, of incomes uh, and earnings, um, and Migration Authority has looked at that data, they, they estimate that 47% of, of the UK population in employment will earn less than the minimum income requirement. Of course, this figure will be much higher for certain population groups, and this includes uh, regions outside of London, uh, where average wages can be much lower, uh, it includes women, so it's six, I think I believe it's 61% of women who, who earn less than the minimum income requirement. Partly because women tend to earn less than men, partly because they tend to be, they're more likely to be in part-time employment. Uh, for some BME groups and, and for, for young people, people under, under 30 years old. There has been so, uh, a recent briefing published by Middlesex University which, which has looked at, at uh, how the introduction of the rules affected um, visas issued uh, for family members or partners. And, and they've actually found that in the six months following the, the introduction of, of the rules, visa, the, the, there was a 57.7 decrease in applications when compared to the six months previous to in, in introducing uh, the changes. Refus the refusal rates doubled. And so the net consequence of this is that there has been a 78% reduction in the number of visas issued. So that's six months after compared to six months uh, before. And, and it's been higher for, for women. It's been at 83, 81%, I believe. So what we, we at the Migrant Rights Network at the moment, we're, we're, we're keen to look beyond kind of like those aggregate statistics, which you can use the estimate, and see what, what was kind of like the impact on individuals and families themselves and what, what they were doing about it. And, and we found, uh, obviously, a lot of stress. Uh, people often don't know the rules are there until they actually go to apply. Um, separation from family members, including children, uh, including uh, fathers who weren't there for, for the birth of, of, of the child, um, and that postponement or, or changes of plans. I mean, this was early days when we started looking at this. There were different responses from, from families. I mean, one of them was indefinite postponement of, of reuniting, people just not knowing how to approach the issue and for the time being just staying put and, and maybe uh, waiting to see whether there's a, whether there's a change. Other people uh, developed strategies to increase their income, and this included uh, taking on extra jobs, so people taking on, on one or two jobs of the other jobs they were already doing, with all the implications that has. Um, and another one was relocating to areas with higher wages. So we've heard of, of people, for example, moving from Wales to London uh, in the hope that they can get a job uh, where they can earn £18,600. There's temporary separation of, of families returning to the UK. This is a particular pro problem when, when both partners live outside the UK. So the British citizen needs to travel back to the UK first, find employment where they meet the income, and then uh, earn that income for six months, I believe it is, uh, before they can apply to, to bring in their, their, their partner. Um, relocation to a country of the, of the non-EEA partner, uh, which can be problematic. I mean, we, we've had cases of, of people where, where the non-EEA partners might be from Syria, from Egypt, countries with a lot of this instability. And finally, something that, that has kind of like 
quite got a bit of momentum lately is, is relocation to another uh, non-EEA country exercising rights, EU uh, free, uh, freedom of movement rights, and often accompanied by returning to the UK with family members, again, exercising uh, freedom of movement rights. So are the policy aims being met? Well, we, we think that there's no clear evidence that the family migrants were a burden on the taxpayer in the, in the first place. Um, so the income threshold was calculated based on the eligibility for, support, for, for uh, benefit support, not on the actual take-up that families were having. So, so we're not, we haven't seen clear evidence that the problem was there in the first place. There's cases of wealthy families who have been unable to meet the requirements due to the evidential requirements. So there's people who, who in theory, should not be uh, affected by the, by the rule and, and haven't been able to, to meet uh, the, the requirements. So there's problems with that. Um, as I said, some people are using e EU rules to successfully circumvent some of the new family rules. Um, and then there's, there's cases where, where actually separation increases the, the use of public uh, Funds and, and two examples are, are when, when mothers stay at home uh, looking after a child when they could be working uh, if the partner were here. And another one is where, uh, where people relocate to find a, a higher paying job and, and parents are left to be supported by the local authority rather than by the family. So what are, what are some of the implications uh, like arising from, from, from this evidence? Well, the first one is that, is that it's not clear that this policy is, is, is meeting its policy aims, or, or at, at the very least, in many cases, it is excluding people it should not. The family rules uh, are affecting people who would not ex have expected to be affected by immigration policy, and, and with this I refer, one of the people who have written to us are actually white British citizens who, who would never have uh, expected to, to immigration rules to affect them, and, and I think that raises the stakes in the immigration debate. As with other immigration policies, um, the rules conflict with other policy areas, and, and, and two big ones are, as I already mentioned, EU rules for freedom of movement, but also children and family, and that has been highlighted in the old party group report, uh, the question of whether the best interests of the child are being met in, 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 in all cases. Uh, and finally, there's this balance between uh, coming up with a simple rule, so a simple figure that's widely applicable. Um, but yet, you, when you want to tackle abuse, you, you, you set out a series of requirements and, and uh, evidence base that, that makes it very difficult to understand how you can meet the, the, the requirement, the simple requirement itself, and that doesn't really uh, take account of, of the very variable circumstances that people face. If you want more information, you can always visit our, our website. Um, as I said, the All Party Group report is, is at the front, and, and it's available online on the All Party Group website. Okay, thank, thank you. So now, um, in this part of the presentation, we're turning to look at the impacts of post-entry policies that affect family migrants, and in particular looking at um, restrictions and entitlements um, that family migrants face when they enter the country, and looking specifically at the impacts of those on integration. Um, that's the subject of the Intercity Research Project at Compass. This is an 18-month research project that's funded by the European Commission. It is um, a comparative project that um, involves partners also in Germany, Spain and the Netherlands, but we'll just be talking about the UK case today. Um, as Sarah said, that this is, we're, we're still working on the project, so this is very much about presenting to you emerging findings and really inviting you to think along with us 
some of the policy implications that, that might emerge from the evidence that we're presenting today. So as I've said, the, the project is interested in integration, and I think that we can say that successive UK governments have attached some importance to integration of migrants. Um, it's also true to say that they might mean different things by integration over those years. Um, so it, I think it's, it, for the coalition government, it's, um, as these quotes show, that it's very much about learning the language to integrate. Um, but from our point of view in the project, what we mean by integration is participation across multiple domains, including structural integration, so being able to work and access the labour market, um, being um, able to participate in education, healthcare, as well as being able to participate socially and civically, so across multiple domains. So in order to facilitate integration, um, government has granted family migrants access to certain key areas. So family migrants are able to work when they come in, they're able to access primary and secondary healthcare for the moment, um, and able to access, children are able to access compulsory education. On the other hand, some areas are more often restricted, and that's particularly around being able to access welfare benefits and social housing through the no recourse to public funds condition, um, and also access funding for post-compulsory education, um, and also affects the, the rights to vote um, and political participation. Now that's rather a crude presentation, because actually the system gets incredibly complex. Um, Juan's part of the presentation was looking at, at the changes that affect family members from outside the EU joining British citizens and settled persons, but we're actually looking at family members across the board. So that includes um, migrants joining um, EU nationals, refugees, workers, students. And actually what this develops into is a really complex and variegated system of restrictions and entitlements where some people will be entitled to some things, other families entitled um, to, to, to less. So it really gets very complicated. So the Impacin project explores the impact of this system of restrictions and entitlements and really comes to consider this potential tension that exists between saying on one hand that we want migrants to be integrated but on the other hand restricting them from some areas of support that citizens are entitled to. How we do this is another question because actually this so little data on family migrants and family migrants integration in particular so we don't know the extent to which family migrants are integrated we don't know the extent to which um, uh, they are relying on benefits or able to work and all of those sorts of things um, data is very few um, in terms of the quantitative analysis that we've been able to do we've relied on the Labour Force Survey, um, which has a question for reason for migration. So that's not foolproof, but it does offer some possibilities there. We're not going to present on that today, but please come along. Um, we'll be um, presenting our final report in September, so please let Vanessa know at the back there if you'd like to come along to, to listen to that. But I think this limited data problem forces us very much to rely 
on qualitative evidence. Um, so in the project, we've conducted, um, we've spoken with 40 interview, individuals in interviews or focus groups, um, including policymakers, local council officers, really people whose daily work might offer something, some evidence on, on these questions. Um, we did um, research at the national level and also locally with case studies in Reading and Birmingham. So first of all, let's consider do entitlements facilitate integration? And I think in those areas where access is granted, it's actually very difficult to answer that question because of the fact our evidence showed that there were a whole series of additional barriers that got in the way before people were able to access their entitlements. And I think that these non-rule barriers, um, first of all, stem from the complexity of the rules, as I've introduced earlier. So what you find is that even in areas like healthcare, where there are no restrictions, actually there's a kind of importing or a sense that people believe there to be restrictions and they're being introduced, so people asking for passports to be presented or to send people away because they seem to be ineligible. And this occurred across the board, um, so we found examples of refugees being asked for, to provide documentation that they were no longer issued with, and a real sort of sense of misunderstanding at the local level in job centres or in GP surgeries about the rules. And I think that this is really brought to life in the second quote here, where you have the rather strange case where a voluntary um, service advise, advisor is actually asked to come into the job centre to advise on the job centre's own rules because the advisors there were very unsure because of the nitty-gritty um, that they're facing inter in interpreting eligibility. And then, in addition, we also find procedural delays, things like delays in issuing of national insurance numbers. And I think that was particularly problematic for refugee families. Um, so they have this 28-day window where they're moving from NAS support to mainstream benefits. And actually, um, 28 days was just not long enough um, for, these, uh, for, for national insurance numbers to be issued and then that having knock-on effects on, on the ability to find work or to access benefits. And then another problem that I think faces people across the board anyway is just a general shortage of service. So where people might have been entitled to social housing, actually just a lack of, of social housing anyway that's affecting everyone, and also the case with ESOL classes. Um, so in terms of the impacts... I think we can see some clear impacts on service providers, that there was a huge sense that time was being wasted um, in trying to um, assess eligibility, governed also by a, a fear of people getting things wrong. People were audited on the decisions that they were making, so it, in a sense it made it easier, I think, for people to say no rather than um, get things wrong. So I think this was driving a more restrictive system than actually exists in, in law. And then there were problems for the voluntary sector in, in challenging this mis misinformation, a lot of time spent 
responding and to, to, to cases where people have been told the wrong things and, and having voluntary services having to develop a real expertise themselves around these issues. In terms of assessing, well, what impacts do these sort of bureaucratic dysfunctions have on integration? I think that's a harder question. But on the other hand, some of our qualitative evidence does point to the fact that there may be impacts on integration. So the delays to get into the labour market, all the problems. If people are sent away from their GP surgeries, then having them present at A&E with headaches and things like that. So I think, you know, there is some evidence that this is impeding integration. So the final part of the presentation, we'll look at the area where there are restrictions, deliberate restrictions. And in particular, I want to concentrate on two areas, the first being um, the condition of no recourse to public funds that restricts access to welfare benefits and social housing. And I think that we saw the impact, particularly for women here, and the sense of sort of unhealthy dependency that the condition meant for women whose immigration <coughs> status depended on their continued relationship with their husband. So this example here is um, talking about case of divorce um, and about how this situation um, gives men carte blanche to be abusive. But even in cases where abuse doesn't happen, it still leads to sort of unhealthy situations where the man may get the, will get the child benefit and the woman migrant won't, so she'll have to go and ask her husband for money to buy nappies. So we all have this um, sort of dependency aspect. But I think the most powerful um, area where we saw impacts of the restrictions was around the limits on funding for post-compulsory education and the requirement now to pay for ESOL classes. So there's a three-year rule for accessing skills funding agency funding. And council officers expressed to us that this was a real sense of frustration because often women would come in, um, particularly women, um, and just be waiting for this three-year period to pass. And that's the time when they're very vulnerable. It's also a time when perhaps they haven't got children. So, um, you know, there's a kind of lost opportunity here that then might set in place a cycle of, of deprivation and exclusion. And so I think, you know, in terms of the long-term impact of that, there are huge costs. Um, this second quote here talks about... Um, Things like, you know, the, in, the inability to communicate causing depression, but also things, you know, the simple things in life about being able to catch a bus or read your children's school report, those sorts of things really, you know, being um, hindered by this restriction in, in place. I do need to finish, so I'll just briefly say that in this area where you do have restrictions, it's also the case that the former example of the other non-rule barriers also comes into place. So you do see, again in this area, problems around the complexity rule of the rules. So for example, on education funding rules that um, colleges might be left with three sets of rules to help them determine the eligibility of a learner. And actually in lots of cases, you know, um, colleges were coming up with very different 
um, understandings of how they would apply these, these, these eligibility rules. One area that does stick out is around the destitution domestic violence concession. And this was felt to be quite a positive um, area of policy change, <coughs> really felt to be a joined up system where women were able to access court. It wasn't without flaws um, because of the, the fact that not everybody is eligible and, you know, obviously concerns about the fact that some women, those joining workers, may um, suffer violence and not be able to access this concession at all, so being forced to stay in violent relationships. So just to sum up then, and really to invite you to think through um, some of what this might mean for policy, I think that we can summarise, well, where rights are granted, there are these other problems, um, procedural problems, complexity of the rules, shortage of the services, that mean that where access exists, it's actually very difficult sometimes to be able to exercise. So we might like to think about the implications of some of that and perhaps a recommendation being about streamlining this guidance, which is um, the, the rules are very complex and, and poorly understood, um, but also the issue about training and making sure that people are up to date with, with the changing rules. In the areas where rights are, are withheld, there are often very good reasons for this to be so costs, reasons, you know, about savings to the public purse. But I also think that we need to understand fully some of the risks to integration that might mean that we assess the policies for the longer term effects. And particularly, I think that that's really important, um, as the evidence shows about re reviewing the restrictions on funding for, for language learning. Thank you.